Well, earlier this year when our family was binge-watching the Olympics, we heard a new term. As we watched Michael Phelps win his 23rd gold medal, we kept hearing the announcers call him the GOAT. You guys remember that? I was like, that's not cool. I mean, he's pretty good. He's not a GOAT. Anyway, it, it was only a few weeks later that I actually realized that GOAT's a flattering term. In the sports world, it's an acronym for the greatest of all time. And so he's the GOAT. Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Usain Bolt, they're all goats. So just in case you're wondering when someone calls someone a goat. You might be wondering what makes a goat a goat. Now, I won't do a goat call. I'm sure Doug has a goat call somewhere, but <laughs> there's, there's no specific requirements that I'm aware of. This is something that talk show hosts likes to debate. What, what makes someone the greatest of all time? Well, they have to be creative. They have to be innovative. They have to be athletic. They've always got to be um, changing the sport. But most importantly, they have to win. And, and usually goats, they, they win big. They, they win a lot. You see, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good you are if you don't win. Could you imagine if Michael Phelps had won 23 silver medals? What would his legacy be? He'd be a really good swimmer, but he wouldn't be the GOAT, right? It doesn't matter if you're the best regular season team. We remember the champions, right? We judge greatness by success, by achievements, by winning. If you constantly flop when it matters most, then you might be good, but you're not great. If this is our standard for athletes, we, we set these remarkably high bars for athletes, how, how do we define greatness for ourselves? How, how do we judge ourselves if we expect this out of our athletes? What do we have to do to achieve personal greatness, right? I'm sure all of us want to be good mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and employers and employees. I think all of us want to be great Christians, we, we want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, but what does that mean for us? Do we constantly have to win? Do we have to set new standards? Do we have to be innovative and creative? What happens when we have a bad day? What happens when we have a bad year? Because that happens. Are we disqualified? What happens when we begin to doubt or struggle or, or want to throw in the towel and just give it all up? You see, I think all of us want greatness, but with our impossibly high standards, greatness does seem out of reach. So this morning, we're going to finish our brief study uh, on John the Baptist. I don't think it's a stretch to say that John was a great prophet. He had one mission. He had come to prepare the way for Christ, and he executed it perfectly. And we're going to see this week that Jesus gives John credit. He's going to call him great. Not only that, the greatest of all time. We're going to hear those words coming out of Jesus' mouth to John the Baptist. And yet his affirmation for John came at the most unexpected time. John's ministry started great, but it ended horribly. I don't know if you remember, but at the end of his life, everything came unraveled. And he began to doubt. And he began to question everything. And at that very moment, Jesus said, you're great. So either Jesus was mistaken or he had something else in mind when he spoke of greatness. Let's dig into the text to see. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be in Matthew 11 this morning. Now, we, we've only uh, gone a few short months from the last time we were in John. Um, John 3, we are talking last week. John 3, he's watching the crowds leave. And only a few short months have elapsed and we find John in prison. Remember last week, John said that he, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. This week, when we pick up the text, we're going to find that John did decrease, and it was extremely painful. So let's pick up in verse 2. Verse 1 is a summary statement for the last chapter, but verse 2 reads like this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, 
Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So this passage begins with John in prison. We studied the details of his arrest in Mark chapter six, not too long ago, so we won't get into the details here, but let me briefly remind you. At some point, John had an opportunity to speak to Herod, the most powerful Jew in the land at the time, King Herod, and so John goes to speak to Herod. Now, you'll remember that Herod had awkwardly married his brother's wife, who was also his niece, but they were in love, and so they got married, and um, as you can imagine, John didn't let him get away with this incestuous relationship. It was against God's law. So we called him on the carpet. Mark 6, 18 records these words. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's all he said. It's not lawful. He grounded his morals in the scripture and it got him sent to jail. So John found himself in a very uncomfortable prison cell in Herod's palace. Now at first, this is not a big deal at all. Some of the most incredible, faithful figures in the Old Testament were sent to jail. Remember Joseph, he offended Potiphar's wife into jail, right? Daniel, he prayed. He was sent to the lion's den. Jeremiah, he preached faithfully and he was sent to the stocks. It's not a big deal because God always delivers his prophets. Some of God's finest work in the Old Testament happened when his servants were in prison. Think about it. He used dreams. He shut the mouths of lions. Some of the most incredible stories that run through our head from the Old Testament, they were happening when when his servants were in prison. So John's patiently waiting. John had even more reason to be confident than Joseph and Daniel and Jeremiah because John's confinement occurred during the reign of the Messiah. Literally, the Son of God was walking around just a few miles outside. I mean, he's got it made. In just a few minutes, Jesus is gonna come and, and tear him out of there because that's what Messiahs do, Right? You can only imagine that going through John's head now was his earlier sermons, Matthew chapter three. John preached a fiery message of judgment. The wicked will be judged. Listen to Matthew chapter three, verse 10. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is John's message earlier to the religious leaders. Herod, the ax is at the root of the tree. If you, if you keep me in this cell, you're going down. Um, Jesus was on his way to vindicate. Except, Jesus wasn't on his way. He was up north in the small fishing towns with the poor people. He was preaching and, and doing little miracles with the sick and the poor. Now this is great, this is really good, but Herod and his evil wife, they were growing more and more impatient. And you have to wonder, was John beginning to think if maybe the ax is gonna fall on him and, and not on Herod. Where was Jesus? In one of the most vulnerable moments of scripture, John sent his disciples to Jesus. He couldn't go, so he sends his disciples and he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We don't expect great men to make statements like this, do we? John knew better. Just a few months earlier, I mean, last week's text, remember, just a, just a couple of months ago, John boldly says, I'm not the Christ, he's the Christ. And now in his prison cell, he says, are you the Christ? He begins to doubt. There have been many commentators, in fact, very good commentators throughout church history that want to get John out of this mess. They say, all right, John is the convicted prophet, he's great, there's no way that he could have doubted here. And so they'll wriggle to try to get John out of this doubt. They'll say, well, 
Okay, John's not doubting, but his disciples, you see, they're they are a fickle little bunch. They, poor guys, they're masters in prison. And so John sends this message for them. He says, you go to Jesus and ask him if he's the one and he's gonna assure your little doubts. There's not a shred of evidence to support that reading though. You really have to do some gymnastics to get that out of there. But this is what the text tells us. John doubted. He just kind of had this crisis. There's no need to bend the Bible to get John out of this moment because people doubt. In fact, some of the greatest figures in the Bible doubted. Do you remember what Elijah did? Just moments after his victorious battle against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, fire had just come and consumed the altars and he goes down the mountain and he curls up under a tree and he says, God, can you take my life now? Do you remember what happened to Jeremiah as he hung in the stocks? Talk about a vulnerable moment of scripture. He said, oh Lord, you've deceived me. You lied. I've become a laughing stock. Is this what you're calling me to? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who himself suffered most of his life with doubt and depression, said it well. The road to sorrow has been well trodden. It's the regular sheep track to heaven and all the flock of God have had to pass along it. I imagine that the fog of doubt and depression will descend on every believer at some point. In fact, you may be there now. For some of you, the fog never seems to lift. You've been there for years. Some of you are not even sure why you came this morning. You're struggling, you're having this crisis of faith. Is he the Christ? I just don't know. I thought I knew, I just don't know anymore. And you're not even sure why you're here. If that's you this morning, let me encourage you. It's okay to doubt. Even fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ doubt sometimes. I feel like doubt is often shunned in the, in the church because we confuse doubt with disbelief, but these are two entirely different attitudes. Disbelief is reserved for those that have cold hearts. They, they don't believe in God. They know the evidence. They've seen, they've heard, and they say, no. They, they refuse to come to the table. Their hearts are hard. They don't care about God. But doubt is the privileged response of the believer. In fact, it takes faith to doubt. Tim Keller has an interesting perspective on this. He actually says that doubt is helpful for the believer. I want you to think about this. He, he says this, faith without doubt sometimes, or faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. It's like you might be thinking you're doing great going through childhood without ever getting sick, but you're actually putting yourself at risk. You're, you're creating a more vulnerable situation for yourself. He says this, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. So if you're genuinely seeking and you're, and you're looking and you're asking the hard questions and you're experiencing hardship and pain, it's okay, you're most likely gonna go through a period of doubting. It's quite normal. But, but here's the question. What do you do when you find yourself there? What do you do? And I imagine, again, many of you are there. What do we do? Let's listen to Jesus' response because it's actually quite encouraging. Pick up in verse four. This is Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. 
and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Is this the way that you expected Jesus to answer John's doubts? Is this the way you expect him to answer your doubts? I mean, John's the forerunner, and he had literally questioned Jesus' position as the Messiah. Perhaps you would expect Jesus to be a little bit more hard on him, right? Come on, John. You should know better. You saw the tr- you saw you baptized me. You heard the voice of the Father. You have the information. Come on, John, get up. Stop doubting. But that's not what he said. Instead, he sent a ministry report. Just go tell John what you're witnessing. And I can imagine Jesus and around this group of poor people that are just bursting with joy because of the stories of the Messiah, the stories of what Jesus had done. And he says, go tell them what you see, the, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead live, the poor are hearing the good news. Can't you just imagine this happy little community? No, John would have known the miracles. Jesus isn't asking him to comb over the evidence again and make another decision. John, John knew. In fact, if you look at verse two, it said, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he knew what he was doing and he still doubted. What Jesus is doing here is he's reminding him that he had come to bring life and to restore order on the earth. This is what messiahs do. This is a legitimate messianic expectation. It's actually backed up in scripture. I wanna read two passages from Isaiah. They sound very similar to the ones that Jesus just quoted. In fact, I think Jesus is quoting scripture. He's not just giving a ministry report, he's quoting the Old Testament for John. Listen to this, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame men shall leap like a deer and the tongues of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then Isaiah 61, another famous messianic text. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The point Jesus is making is undeniable. I am the Messiah and I have come to fulfill the messianic prophecies. But I believe Jesus has a a deeper point here for John. Besides the fact that he intentionally left off the part about the opening of the prison doors. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't quote Isaiah 61, the last part of Isaiah 61.1. And you imagine that John would have heard that ringing and and Jesus stops it there. I've come to open the prison doors. That would have been very relevant for John in prison. Besides the fact he left that part off, he also left out quite a bit. Um, It's the stuff that Jesus doesn't say, I think, that's communicating something to John. You see, when the Messiah comes, he would bring peace and mercy. He would bring life and salvation like the text I just read. But both of these, Isaiah 35 and 61, they're set in a context of a larger discussion. Jesus would come to bring justice. He would come to set things right. So yes, he's gonna bring life and peace and healing and mercy, but he's also gonna come to bring the ax and to chop down the wicked and to restore everything Perfectly. Listen to Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63. Again, these are kind of put in the context of the passages I just read. Isaiah 34, one to three. Draw near, O nations, and hear, and give attention, O peoples, for for the earth, let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over for slaughter. 
and their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Isaiah 63, who is this that comes from Edom and crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. Yikes. This is a heavy passage from Isaiah. This is the Messiah that John was looking for. These are messianic expectations. Who is this who has blood-stained garments. You're gonna come and you're gonna take away all the wickedness and you're gonna once and for all set things right. This is the Messiah that John wanted and needed. He's in prison. Herod and Herodias, they're evil, they've perverted justice and they're getting away with it. They've imprisoned the righteous man and, and it seems like Jesus doesn't care. They're leading the country astray. Where's the Messiah? John was ready for Jesus to smash the iron bars of his prison and overthrow Herod, but that's not what he got. Jesus hadn't come to judge yet. Yet. He had come to save. He had come to heal and to preach the good news to the poor. And so he concluded this message to John's disciples with a new beatitude. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John, don't stumble. Don't fall away. I know that I'm shattering your plans and not your prison bars. But don't fall away. Church, we need to hear these gentle words from Christ this morning. Our world's a mess right now. I think we all know that. Perhaps you're confused and maybe you're beginning to doubt. Jesus, how could you let this happen? But don't fall away. Blessed are those who are not offended by Christ. That word blessed literally means happy, joyful. Joyful are those who simply trust in Christ, even when it doesn't make sense. During his first visit, Jesus came to suffer for sins and to set us free from the power of sin and death. He did not come to bring the ax for wicked people like Herod. In fact, he came to, to take the ax on himself. As Romans 5 reminds us, Christ came and died so that the God of justice might justify sinners. Don't give up this morning. The thrilling victory of God is coming, but until then, we simply cling to the gospel of Jesus and we wait. That's all we have. Let's cling to the gospel of Christ. History is unfolding exactly according to his plan. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Christ. So Jesus sends the disciples away, but he's not done yet. Let's go to verse seven. I wanna finish this text here. We'll go from seven to 11 now. It's, it's pretty fascinating. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So last week we see John bearing witness about Jesus. Jesus is off in the distance and we hear John give this incredible testimony about who Jesus is. This week, John, John's in the distance and we hear Jesus bear witness about John. It's quite stunning. In John's weakest moment, Jesus gives his most glowing praise. Now, the disciples were walking away, so there's a good chance John never heard this. Jesus' words now were directed to the crowds. Now, you have to wonder, what are the crowds thinking? How are they supposed to process this? Their beloved teacher, John, is flaking out on them. Maybe they're starting to doubt John now. How could he, how could the great prophet, how could the man of God say that? And so you have to wonder, were the crowd beginning to doubt John? Was he a flake? Was he soft? The answer is a convincing no. Now this is interesting. Think about this. Just a moment ago, John is in prison doubting Jesus and Jesus defends himself. He says, I am the Messiah, but he does so in this kind of indirect way, giving him some evidence and saying, John, just trust that, okay? Now the crowds start to doubt John and Jesus turns to the crowds and he gives a very emphatic, a very direct answer and he defends John. Is he soft? Is he a flake? No, absolutely not. I mean, the guy wore camel hair. He doesn't wear soft clothing, right? Um, John is a prophet. In fact, he says those men who wear soft clothing, they live in palaces. This is a, a jab at Herod. Herod's the weak one. John, he's not weak. He's not a reed shaken by the wind, just kind of wishy-washy. Maybe the wind's changed and he has a different opinion of Jesus. That's not, that's not John. He's not living a, a, a lavish life with servants tending to his needs. That's, that's your weak king, Herod. No, 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 John is a prophet. He's even more than a prophet. Now, what does that mean? He's more than a prophet. Well, he quotes Malachi chapter three. In other words, John not only prophesied about Jesus, John actually fulfilled prophecies. Isn't that fascinating? Malachi points to John and John points to Jesus. This makes him more than a prophet. He's an extremely important figure in redemptive history. This is why Jesus closed his defense of John with this stunning phrase, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. There it is, John's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. But again, doesn't it seem like the absolute worst time to make that declaration? I mean, John had just doubted him. Maybe at the end of last week, um, Jesus could have said, man, that's a servant that I want. He's, He's the greatest of all time, but not today. John had just doubted. He had lost his way. How is he now the greatest of all time? Was Jesus just going too far? Sometimes I do this. I, I, I go a little bit too far. A couple of years ago, Laura and I were at a friend's house and uh, we were eating dinner and I, um, I have a tendency to be superlative and so I, you know, I was eating the mashed potatoes and I was like, these are the best mashed potatoes I've ever eaten in my life. And the lady blushed and she said, well, great, they came right out of the box. <laughs> I'd clearly gone too far. <laughs> oh, well, can I see that box then, I guess? <laughs> Um, is this what Jesus did? John is the greatest of all time, and clearly everybody knows he's not really the greatest, but he's just saying that. Or is there something else to John's greatness? If we judge John according to our standards for greatness, you gotta win, you can never flop. You know, John, John's gonna be good. 
but he's not the greatest of all time. He wilted under pressure. He was really good in the regular season, but he fell apart in the playoffs. That's his legacy. But Jesus had a different standard for judging John. He wasn't judging John according to his achievements. So thankful. Jesus wasn't judging John according to his success. He was judging him according to his position. John was great because of his position. He pointed to Jesus. You see, every one of the Old Testament figures in some mysterious and vague way, um, they point to Jesus. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her excellent children's Bible, um, every story in the Old Testament whispers his name. John shouted his name Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of the stories somehow vaguely pointed to Jesus. John, with his index finger, pointed to Jesus and he says, Behold, he's the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. He's the Christ. John didn't know it yet, but even his imprisonment and death were pointing to Jesus. They're kind of giving us a foretaste of the, of the death that Jesus would soon go through. John and everything pointed to Jesus in a very real and tangible way. He points to Christ. There's never been a greater human than John. Now, if that weren't enough, th- this is unreal. Jesus goes one step further. Listen to this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is shocking because you know who he's talking about. That's us. Those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John, not because of our stature or our achievements or the strength of our faith. We're greater than John because of our position. We get a better view of Jesus than John did. You see, John, he died before he saw the resurrection. We get to see it all play out. The other night at dinner, my, my three little girls were talking about Jesus and my four-year-old and six-year-old, they got into a discussion about Jesus and my four-year-old said, Jesus didn't have to come, he wanted to come. And so we're talking talk about how Jesus wanted to come and the joys of Jesus coming and wanting to die for us. The deep, deep love of, love of Jesus. At that point, my four-year-old and my six-year-old were having a conversation that Isaiah and Jeremiah could not have had. Do you understand that? That makes us great. Not because we're great, humanly speaking, our position makes us great. This means middle school student that believes in Jesus. I want you to listen to me right now. You're greater than King David when he killed Goliath. I I know you don't feel like that, but you have the gospel. You know the resurrection and you have the spirit of God living inside of you and that makes you great. I know the tired, exhausted mothers in here, you need to hear this. You're faithfully teaching your children about the joys of the gospel and the wonders of Christmas and the power of the resurrection. You don't feel like it, but listen, you're greater than Ruth and Esther, these incredible women of faith. You need to hear that this morning. Faithful fathers, you're greater than Father Abraham. Business owners that are empowered and led by the Holy Spirit and the Watch the gospel unfold in your, in your work. You're greater than Moses. Now, we're not arrogant here. Far from it. 
Far from being arrogant. We're not saying that we have greater faith than theirs. Our faith is weak compared to this great cloud of witnesses that stands among us, right? But we're on a little bit of a higher mountain. And we have a little bit of a different view. And we can see a little bit more than they can. And that makes us great. We have the gospel. We have the spirit of God living inside of us. And so church, let us point to Jesus. Let us proclaim the gospel and the power of the resurrection. Let me close with this one point. Last week, we saw that John had a very good understanding of himself. He, he says, I'm not the Christ, I'm, I'm the friend. I'm not the groom, I'm the friend of the groom. I'm the best man in the wedding. And so if you imagine it like this, all down the line of the Old Testament, you've got these figures just in this wedding processional that are, that are pointing to Jesus. And John is the greatest because he stands right next to Jesus and he says, he's the Christ. Church, we, we have a better view of the wedding. The church is the bride of Christ. We're walking down the aisle. We are united with God in a way that was previously unthinkable. Let us take comfort in our privileged position this morning. I keep hearing that 2016 is the worst year to be alive. <laughs> it's a horrible year, right? According to the scriptures, it's actually the best year. We have the best view of Jesus. So let's continue to point to him. Let's continue to proclaim the gospel, even if it costs us dearly. This privileged position also comes with a lot of suffering, as we're finding in Mark's gospel. But let's continue to push through. Let's not give up. As Christ reminds us, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray.